I am not banning fracking. Let me say that again. I am not banning fracking, no matter how many times Donald Trump lies about me. Would there be any place for fossil fuels, including coal and fracking, in a Biden administration? No, we would we would work it out. We would make sure it's eliminated and no more subsidies for either one of those. I would not stop fracking. I'd gradually move away from fracking. I would just not do more fracking on federal lands. But I want you to look in my eyes. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, we're going to end fossil fuel and I am not going to cooperate. Ah, yes. The time-honored tradition of the political flip-flop. And you're never going to guess where it happened this time. And this one, my friends, is going to be a gas. Come on, let's go. Good morning, my friends, and welcome to another scintillating installment from high above all other puerile and pedantic forms of Wyoming mainstream media. This is Cowboy State Politics. I, of course, am your illustrious host, David Iverson, firmly ensconced behind the silver Cowboy State Politics microphone and broadcasting to you from the base of the Bighorns in beautiful Buffalo, Wyoming. Cowboy State Politics is the most listened to political podcast in the state of Wyoming, documented to be almost always right 98.9% of the time. We begin this morning with yet another lingering dumb idea brought to you courtesy of the Biden administration and the Pravda on the Platte. In a story entitled, Fed's OK! Wyoming Electric Charging Plan Deny Most Exemptions, Nicole Pollack writes, quote, Ahem, ahem. Biden administration officials on Tuesday approved the first stage of Wyoming's plan to use federal dollars to build electric vehicle chargers along three major highways, but granted only a handful of the exemptions requested by the state. Wyoming will receive an estimated $26.8 million in infrastructure law funds over the next five years to build, expand, maintain at least seven charging stations along I-25, I-80, and I-90 as part of the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program, or NEVI. Jordan Axe, a spokeswoman for the Wyoming Department of Transportation, said, We'll keep working with the federal government to come up, come to a solution that works for everybody. It doesn't really affect us this year. We're just going to keep focusing on the interstates right now. Ah, uh, yeah. Start small. Sounds like a good plan. Quote, a Wyodot analysis included in the state's proposal, which was finalized on September 19th, found that if the state built charging stations every 50 miles, all three corridors would average less than one visit per station per day until 2027 and may not see any stations become profitable before 2040. Well, yeah, 
That's because everybody in this state realizes that unless you live in Cheyenne or Casper and you never leave the confines of our metropolises, owning an electric vehicle is a dumb idea and a stupid waste of money. An astute listener of Cowboy State Politics from Sheridan told me recently that he left Sheridan with a relative of his from Colorado who was driving a Tesla and they headed up Highway 14. The Tesla did fine for the first 14 miles and then it started lagging behind and pretty soon he couldn't see the Tesla. So he pulled off at Burgess Junction. 20 minutes later, the Tesla pulled into the parking lot and informed him that after the initial 14 miles, the car slowed to sub 20 mile an hour speeds. And that was after a full charge at one of those fabulous charging stations down in downtown Sheridan. Like I said, this whole charging station thing is a pretty dumb idea. But if you'd like more evidence as to the monumentally idiotic nature of this whole plan, I told you about it back in April. Here's what I had to say. We begin this morning with a lesson in free market capitalism. When government keeps its nose out of the free market, generally it takes care of itself. When a need arises for a new product, private companies, in an attempt to make money, will find ways to provide that product or service. Or the reverse is also true. If a company is providing a product that is substandard and not of high quality, people will just stop buying it which gives an opening in the market for somebody else to create a better product. None of these principles are difficult, unless, of course, you work for the federal government or the Wyoming Department of Transportation. To the cow pie, in an article entitled Wyoming Working to Develop Network of Electric Vehicle Charging Stations, published on March 30th, Jim Engel writes, quote, State officials are working on a plan to use federal money to encourage private companies to build a network of high-speed electric vehicle recharging stations along the state's interstate highways. First question, why doesn't that network of charging stations already exist? Simple answer, class, because there's not a need in the market for it. Uh, back to the article. Quote, Although Wyoming has one of the lowest ownership rates for electric vehicles in the nation, it needs to build up its infrastructure for the vehicles to provide those needs for those traveling to or through the state, says Luke Reiner, director of the Wyoming Department of Transportation. Quote, The focus is on electric vehicles being purchased by people around the nation who we know want to come to Wyoming as tourists. He told the Cowboy State Daily on Wednesday, We want to make sure the infrastructure exists to get them from point A to point B. End quote. My first question is, who hired this guy? Second, this is a perfect example of the government trying to create a need in the market that doesn't exist. The next paragraph shows you exactly why the director of the Wyoming Department of Transportation shouldn't have been hired in the first place. And I quote, According to a draft study prepared for the plan, there are 456 registered electric cars and light trucks in Wyoming, along with 11 electric motorcycles or multi-purpose vehicles in the state. That amounts to less than one-tenth of one percent of the more than 653,000 non-commercial vehicles in the state. End quote. So wait a minute. We're either building a network of electric charging stations along all of Wyoming's interstates, that means all along I-80, all along I-25, and all along I-90 at 50-mile intervals for 456 vehicles, 
or B, we're building said network of electric charging stations for people that don't even live in this state, and we have no idea if they're actually going to bring their electric vehicles to the state on vacation. Let me just posit a theory on this one. The reason why we don't have electric charging stations littered across the highways and byways of the great state of Wyoming is there isn't a need for them. I think that Luke Reiner, the director of the Wyoming Department of Transportation, has mistakenly punched his time card at the Wyoming Business Council. You see, that's the proper outfit for spending taxpayer money when there's absolutely no need for it. Exactly correct. The other problem with this moronic plan, of course, is that it's going to contribute to inflation. Back to the Pravda on the plat. Oh, wait, wait, hold on a minute. Ah, it's like a new toy. I just can't stop pushing that button. But anyway, the Pravda says that these charging stations probably won't be profitable until 2040 which means that it's going to continue to contribute to inflation. Something we really need now, which apparently is what Luke Reiner, the Wyoming Department of Transportation, and the U.S. federal government are trying to do. Moving on. You can listen to the podcast on any of your favorite podcasting apps. iHeartRadio, iTunes, TuneIn, really any of them will work. But the easiest way is just to go to the website, CowboyStatePolitics.com. There, you can find any of the shows, as well as all of the articles that I might bring up during the course of a program. If your name is Sleepy Joe Biden or Luke Reiner, and you have no idea what you're doing, well, you can go to CowboyStatePolitics.com, pull up an article, and educate yourself. New episodes of the program are broadcast every Monday, Wednesday, and don't forget about the live program every Thursday morning at 10 a.m., and then, of course, weekend update every Saturday morning. One of the more entertaining things about politics is the flip-flop. No, not the kind that you wear on your feet. I mean, my girlfriend, she wears flip-flops all the time, and she looks pretty cute in them. Uh, But politicians flip-flopping, well, they're not so cute. They are pretty entertaining, though, and extraordinarily revealing about who these people actually are. There's a difference, a big difference, between changing your mind after you've learned something new and just flip-flopping. You see, flip-flopping really is just pandering to people. Uh, That's telling people what you think they want to hear in order to get their vote. Perhaps the number one grand champion of flip-flopping is John Kerry. I mean, there's some real gems that have come out of his mouth. I took some time last night to put together a little montage for you of some of his greatest hits. I think it's pretty funny. Here it is. John Kerry is the candidate for all Americans. No matter what side you're on, John Kerry is on your side. John Kerry supported the war. We need to disarm Saddam Hussein. John Kerry argued against the war. It's the wrong war in the wrong place at the wrong time. If you think we spent too much money on the war, John Kerry agrees with you. I would not have made the wrong choices that are now forcing us to pay nearly the entire cost of this war. $200 billion that we're not investing in education and health care. Or if you think we didn't spend enough money on the war, John Kerry agrees with you. Do you believe that we should reduce funding that we are now providing for the operation in Iraq? No, I think we should increase it. 
increase funding? Yes. By how much? By whatever number of billions of dollars it takes to win. Maybe you think Iraq never had weapons of mass destruction. John Kerry had the courage to say so. Based on weapons of mass destruction. The president distorted that, and I said that. Or maybe you think Iraq did have weapons of mass destruction. John Kerry had the courage to say so. Iraq has some lethal and incapacitating agents and is capable of quickly producing, weaponizing a variety of such agents, including anthrax. If you think it was wrong to vote against the $87 billion to arm our troops, John Kerry agreed. Will you then vote against the $87 billion? I don't think any United States senator is going to abandon our troops and recklessly leave Iraq. That's irresponsible. There's a way to do this properly. But I don't think anyone in the Congress is going to not give our troops ammunition, not give our troops the ability to be able to defend themselves. If you think it was right to vote against the $87 billion, then John Kerry also agrees with you. Proud to say that John joined me in voting against that 87 billion or if you're simply not sure John Kerry has a position for you I actually did vote for the 87 billion dollars before I voted against it if you think it's wrong to go it alone in a war John Kerry agrees going it alone in Iraq that's the wrong choice that's the wrong direction if you think it's okay to go it alone John Kerry agrees with you. The president, as I also wrote in that article, always reserves the right to act unilaterally, protect the interests of our country. John Kerry had the courage to try to do it on 60 Minutes. You voted for this war. Was that well, vote, given what you well, know I now, a mistake? Well, Leslie, you see, you're playing here. The only candidate with the courage to take every position on every issue. It's not easy defending multiple positions. John Kerry, more positions than any other candidate, and the courage to stand by all of them. That's not a flip-flop. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, the flip-flop. Honestly, that method of political humor is unparalleled, my friends. But it would appear that we have our own flip-flopping going on. And this one is a new one on me. There are a number of people who are running as independents and from the Constitution Party in this year's general election. And so to get to know all of them, of course, your illustrious host knows exactly who these people are. But anyway, so you could get to know them, I sent them all an interview invite. The first guy to smash down that buzzer and ring in for an interview was Dan Brecht. Dan Brecht is running in Goshen and Converse counties against Representative Jeremy Haroldson. Honestly, I don't know that much about him. But anyway, he was really eager to get on the program. As we all know, if you haven't heard your candidate on cowboy state politics, there is a definite reason for it. Most likely, the reason for that is they've only claimed to be conservative and they're absolutely certain that I'll expose their ultimate lack of conservatism, and so they avoid this program. Now, of course, that's only me theorizing as to the reason why they avoid cowboy state politics like the plague, but, you know, it's a theory that happens to fit the facts. So, anyway, back to the story. Me and Dan Brecht had an interview set up for 6.30 this evening. I had cleared my schedule and prepared a list of probing questions for Mr. Dan Brecht. And then I received the following email. Now, remember, 
Mr. Dan Brecht had already pulled a Landon Brown and agreed to an interview. Which, by the way, it's been 607 days since Landon Brown agreed to an interview and then declined later. The difference here, of course, is Gomez didn't give me a heads up that he was not going to show up for an interview. Dan Brecht did. So I guess we have to chalk up at least one point on his scorecard. So anyhow, he sends me this email. Quote, I thought about the interview overnight, and I've decided not to do it, based primarily on my need to listen to the voters of House District 4 before I can solidly make decisions on so many issues. I don't want to be accused of flip-flopping just because what I tell you in an interview might change based on what I learned from my voters and continued research that I'm doing. I do, however, appreciate your offer. Sincerely, Dan. So... In an attempt to avoid flip-flopping, which, by the way, the best way to avoid flip-flopping is just to be honest, but in an attempt to avoid flip-flopping, he flip-flopped before he could flip-flop. <laughs> oh, man, that one's awesome. Two thoughts on this. First, and more generally speaking, it's not a good career move to avoid the press. Remember, I'm in the business of transparency and truth and telling you exactly what these people are doing. Secondly, it's a little insulting. I've never once taken anybody out of context, and that includes people that I have some serious ideological differences with, like Gomez Landon Brown, or even soon-to-be former Redcoat Speaker of the House Eric Barlow. Never once have I taken him out of context. The bottom line is, even if I don't agree with you, and you're honest, I'll still defend you, because you were honest. Granted, I'm probably going to explain in seven different ways how you were wrong, but I'll still play your comments in context, because that's what I do. Since Dan Brecht wouldn't talk to us, I thought that we should talk to his very honest and very forthright opponent, Representative Jeremy Haroldson. But before we do that, a completely obscene profit timeout. Cowboy State Politics is brought to you by Morton Buildings. If you're in the market for an outbuilding or a garage or a barn or a roping arena or maybe a magnificent warehouse... Well, then you need to call my friends, Nick and Jesse, at Morton Buildings, 307-674-2532. These guys are the experts in metal building construction. They've been doing it longer than anybody else around, and they definitely do it better than anybody else around. So it doesn't matter what kind of metal structure you've been thinking about, give Nick and Jesse a call. Again, their phone number is 307-674-2532. Or you can check them out on their website at mortonbuildings.com. Right now is the highest we've ever seen gun markets. And the best performers are the vintage collectible firearms, Winchesters, Colts, and rare military weapons. Over at Cody, Gunrunner Auctions is one of the nation's leading online auction houses. And they're celebrating their 23rd year. Their specialty is estate firearms. Scott Weber, the owner travels to an estate and first appraises the firearms for the heirs and then takes them to his Cody auction facility where he researches each firearm's history, sometimes getting letters from the Cody Museum. Each month, beginning on the 7th, Scott and his team post 500 fine firearms for sale. All of the auctions start at 20 bucks with no reserve. 
and they only charge 15% for selling your precious firearms. They've sold the personal collections of Elvis Presley, Steve McQueen, Alex McCord, and Herb Parsons, just to name a few. So it doesn't matter what firearm you're looking for, Gunrunner Auctions probably has it. And they've also got a large selection of ammunition and firearms accessories. So whatever you're looking for, firearm-related, go to GunrunnerAuctions.com. Don't forget about tomorrow's live episode. It begins at 10 a.m. I've got the link already posted at CowboyStatePolitics.com, and I'll post the live link on the Facebook page. That's tomorrow at 10 a.m. And now, back to the program. Incumbent in House District 4 is Representative Jeremy Haroldson. I had a chance to visit with him the other night. Here's the complete interview. Joining me this morning is Representative Jeremy Haroldson. Jeremy represents House District 4 down in Converse and Platte County. Welcome to the program, Representative. Thank you very much, David. It's good to be on. As this is your first time on the program, why don't you just take a few minutes and tell my listeners about yourself? give you guys a little bit of a background uh seven years ago i was in the middle of of the the normal american life if you want to call it that of the nine to five had a great job life was really good and got through a, a curveball and i swung and i went from being a, a mechanic and welder to being a pastor i know it's quite a, a swing between those two uh and i started pastoring impact ministries a church that i was part of planting uh, so over the last six and a half years, I've pastored Impact Ministries. Two years ago in the middle of COVID, uh, I got into the middle of this uh, this shutdown state, which I know we weren't shut down, but the funny part was I was being told I couldn't have church. So that feels a lot like being shut down. A little and, bit. Yeah, exactly. And so I got on the phone with the with the governor's office and I got on the phone with my representative and I got on the phone with anyone who would listen to me saying, hey, you know, First of all, I believe this is a breach of Article 1, Section 38 of my Constitution, which states that all medical uh, decisions are made by me, not by my government or by anyone else. And uh, the people that go to my church should be able to make a decision if they feel comfortable or safe coming to church. And if they don't, they can stay home. But you can't tell me I can't have church. And so I said, hey, let's get together. Uh, figure this out. Let's open things back up. I'm seeing people health wise are in a bad place because we're community-minded, community-focused individuals as, as human beings. We need community, and we separated people from community. And so I said, let's open it back up. My The governor's call obviously got kind of stuck at a desk somewhere. The representative call actually was talking with my rep, and at the end of that conversation, I my feeling and, and his statement was basically, why don't you be the pastor, I'll be the politician, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, which was the wrong thing to tell me. Uh, I'm kind of one of those uh, full-on, full-throttle type individuals. And so that started the conversation myself with my wife and, and some close advisors to me. And I said, you know what? Um, I, I'm not represented and I'm not okay with that. So I put my name in the hat 
And uh, I don't remember right off, I think it was like 13 some odd percentage point, 13.7 percentage points is what I beat Dan Kirkbride over or with. So so two years ago, I got in. Now I'm standing here uh, my going into my second term or into the election for my second term and uh, have had the opportunity to represent House District 4 in the state legislature and, and just bring a kind of a, a no-nonsense grassroots uh, blue collar slash pastor mentality into legislature. Well, no nonsense is certainly a good description of you. And you've you've proven yourself to be a rather outspoken member of the legislature. That's probably understating it a bit. So what do you see are the main challenges in this upcoming legislative session? Well, I think I, I put a Facebook live video out a while back and I entitled it The Elephant in the Room. Uh, the, one of the, gr the greatest challenges we, we face right out of the gate uh, doesn't even happen during legislation. It happens uh, way before legislation. It actually happens on November 19th whenever we choose as the Republican caucus the leadership for the House. Um, we are standing at a place right now where maybe the first time in my lifetime we could see true conservative leadership over the House of Representatives in the state of Wyoming. And what that means is we have the ability to see um, just, I guess, a shift in the culture and the, uh, the outlook on where we're going to go as a state. A lot of these topics that I do see coming up, like fairness in women's sports and and critical race theory and ESG, our, our assault on the funding models for what we hold dear as, as, as Wyomingites, um, when all of those, those big headline topics, we won't get traction with those topics uh, if we continue with a liberal-based uh, liberal um, leadership in the House. And so I think that those topics are the issues, but even before those issues, we need to, we need to make sure that that we continue to uh, to see conservative leadership move forward uh, on the legislative realm. Now, you mentioned ESG, and I've I've talked about it a couple times on the program, but many Wyoming citizens may not be familiar with what it actually is. So could you just give us a quick and dirty explanation of what ESG is? Absolutely. So ESG is the uh, liberal left's approach and agenda to weaponize banking and lending uh, agencies against anything they disagree with. So ESG is the way that they're going to move forward the, the new Green Deal, uh, 30 by 30, uh, gun control and gun um, and Second Amendment uh, hampering or or conflict and and how it works is this. They they have a, a series of guidelines that say is is your business or your entity does it line up environmentally um does it line up socially and help me david what's the last one about Gover governmental governmental so really is it is, this is it is it green is it politically correct and does it align with where the government wants it to align with and and so really what that comes down to is coal oil natural gas um all of those things automatically have hits against them firearm manufacturing companies uh products like ammunition anything of that nature fossil fuel based rubbers anything that that we hold almost dear the stuff that makes our lives work 
those things are going to be um, put on the chopping block and they'll sit there and say, we're sorry, that doesn't line up with our checklist. You don't get funding. And so it's discrimination in the realm of, uh, of funding through loans, uh, through these, these credit unions and banks. So ESG, I believe, is one of our biggest silent killers uh, of, of our way of life right now that needs to be addressed. Well, certainly with our natural resources, you mentioned coal, oil, and natural gas. But one of the most recent examples of that is Visa saying that they're going to track firearms and ammunitions purchases. Now, Wyoming has an interesting statute, and I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it was just recently passed where banks cannot dis discriminate against firearms manufacturers. What do you think could be done with that statute that we already have to cover somehow deal with what Visa and MasterCard and all those people are doing with gun purchases. Absolutely. So David, the, the concept here is, um, and we all know this, but, but one of the things that we get to see coming out of this, this viewpoint or this agenda that the left has is uh, you need to be tolerant, right? You need to be tolerant, tolerant, tolerant. You know, we can't have this, we can't have this. This is all about safety and tolerance but they're incredibly intolerant. They, they go 100% against what they believe. And so what we're seeing here with this, with this using credit, weaponizing credit cards uh, in the name of protection and, and stopping these mass shootings, in time what it is is this, is their ability to digitalize uh, firearm sales databases so that it's easier for them to um, maybe even criminalize gun owners. And so this bill that Art Washett, Representative Art Washett brought forward, made it where no banking institution could discriminate against a firearm manufacturing company. And that gives us the framework by which we already have defined what discrimination is. We've already defined how we're going to deal with it uh, through the legal side of things um, and statute, now what we can do is we can piggyback in there that no, um, no credit card companies nor uh, debit card uh, operators being Visa, MasterCard, American Express, any of those uh, are able to discriminate nor uh, log uh, information in regards to gun sales. Well, that one, that one in and of itself really disturbs me uh, yeah. because, you know, all of the credit card companies were like, well, we'll never, we're not going to release the details of your purchases. Well, then why <laughs> the heck are you doing it? Yeah. Oh, they'll release them. Trust me. Uh, yes, they will. Uh, because they wouldn't be taking the time and the energy to do this unless they were. Now, this is the thing. This is being pushed on them. So you have to understand that. But that doesn't mean that we can't push back on them. Well, and, and I... You know, the concerns of most people when they when they read those articles, there was a couple of them that showed up in the cow pie, and I believe there was one on, on the Red Star. But the concerns of most people are, oh, man, it's going to be a gun registry, which absolutely it is going to be a gun yeah. registry. Yeah. But the more sinister part of it is that same model is going to be used for other commodities. You mm -hmm. know, it's going to end up being, well, I'm sorry, Jeremy, you know, you've you've exceeded your gasoline allotment for this month. You know, yep. you you can't use your credit card. Or, no, I'm I'm sorry, you can't purchase that soft drink. The real sinister part of this whole thing is the level of control that can be exercised under that model. 
and it, it really should scare the hell out of just about everybody. Absolutely. Well, and you need to understand that uh, history repeats itself. And, and you know, back just after the World War, uh, George Orwell wrote 1984. If you never read it, read it. Uh, it'll scare the hell out of you, if we're being very honest, because um, because you sit there and go, wow, we're living it today. And, and this is a way that they have to do it. They have to eliminate your ability to use cash and they have to be able to take and put you into a position where they can control your, your spending habits and your buying ability. And like you said, gas rationing. Okay, they could use that. What about food? Yeah. What about um, medical supplies? What about, you name it, whatever it may be. It, it, it's the easiest way to control. It's the, it's the ring in the nose of the people is that funding or is, is our, our, our funds and through these, these digital means. And, and the re my generation is a credit card generation. Um, and so they know that they have that control. So that's, that's control at a personal level. Um, yeah. One thing, one thing that I see statewide and all of my gallivanting around is that you can go to just about any small Wyoming town and the main street looks about the same. And by that, I mean that there, there really aren't that many businesses. You can go to Main Street Buffalo. And I mean, there's a couple businesses down there, you know, that have been there for a long time. But the vast majority of them are um, antique shops, those sorts of things. Um, and I, I see that across the state. And yet, at the same time, the state of Wyoming spends a tremendous amount of money on what they call economic development. And a lot of that money is spent through the Wyoming Business Council. And yet we don't really see a lot of actual economic development. So in your opinion, Jeremy, um, why doesn't this model of economic development work? So there, there's two, to understand economic development, you need to understand there's two types of businesses. Uh, and, and, and you need to understand, I don't have a degree in business. It's this, I'm, I'm just speaking from common sense, looking at it. I actually, at one time, uh, I was chair or, or president of the chamber of commerce here in Platte County, which is some people look at me kind of funny because, um, how an incredibly conservative kid got into that position. Not quite sure, but somebody uh, made a good choice. There you go. Amen. I'll take it. Um, but one of the things that you have to understand, there's two types of businesses. There are support businesses and foundational businesses. Support businesses would be like your hardware store, your coffee shop, um, your antique store, your, your clothing store, those types of stores, um, because those businesses are there to support. They're, going, they're there to take care of the needs of the people in a community. The second are foundational, and those are manufacturing companies, utilities, coal mines, um, oil well drilling services. Those there, those bring in funds. Those bring in economic development. Those are the things that will actually boister and build your community. They bring jobs. They bring stability. Um, you know what? As much as we don't love it, they bring tax structure. And so, um, and that's a whole nother conversation for a whole nother time on how that should be taxed. But the point is that's economic development. But what we've seen through economic development is this mainstream concept where we want to celebrate the past. Now, should we preserve the past? 
Sure, I have no problem with that. We can learn a lot from our past. The moment they start eliminating history, <laughs> start questioning things. You um, mean like uh, right now? Yeah, like, like, uh, yeah. <laughs> Don't get rid of your books, folks. Please uh, keep those because it's really hard for them to eliminate those. But uh, they can change whatever they want on the internet. Um, and so we're at a point where. If we're not careful, we take and we'll we'll dump all our money in, into into preserving and celebrating the past and creating uh, our our main street or our downtown sectors or our economics into a place where they don't actually bring development into our communities. Uh, they're on, only support businesses, not growth businesses, not foundational businesses. And so I think that that's something that needs to be said. Now, with that, there have been some of those shifts we've seen, and it's actually happened in the firearm manufacturing realm more than anything. Uh, but you consider Magpul, Stag Arms, uh, High Viz, Weatherby, um, there's, and there's a number of others as well. But those are some larger manufacturing companies that have come in and said, hey, you know what? We like your political climate. We like your state. Uh, we like your tax structure. And we want to come in there and we want to actually boister your economies. That's economic development. Um, if we only build support, we are not developing our economy. We're actually creating the potential for a drag on our economy. Well, and just just ostensibly, you know, the only thing that government creates is more government. Correct. And so to, to right. And the question I hear all of the time, and perhaps I've uttered it a couple of times, is what can the state do to boost business? Well, the obvious answer is that is get the heck out of the way. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and secondly, when the government steps into the free market, the best example is uh, where communities want to build a recreation center, you know, a gymnasium, a gym, those sorts of things. Well, then they offer you a membership at a decreased cost, right? Because they, their argument is, well, you've already paid for this with your tax dollars. And it sounds great, and they've got great looking plans, but they never consider the guy down the street that has a private gym that can't yeah. compete with government. And right. so really what we're doing with you know much of this economic, quote unquote, economic development stuff, is that we're we're actually decreasing the economic output of the community because private businesses have to compete with government. I mean, it's it's entirely backwards of what they try to tell us. And it, and it goes beyond even that. That's a great example. But I'll use the example too of uh, of our energy industry in in Wyoming. So there's a push for for renewables. And and I'm not. People say you're opposed to renewables. I'm not opposed to renewables. I'm opposed to stupid. And so <laughs> this is a situation where we can create renewables that are intelligent, let's do it. It's brilliant. But the problem is, is what we've done is we don't have technology yet figured out. So what we're doing is we're doing a ready fire aim mentality. And so what happens is we go, oh, that's a 15 year wind farm. 15 years later, we got to gut all of these, these windmills out and we got to throw them away. Well, where do you throw them away? Oh, well, you know what? They don't have, it, it was not cost effective in the first place. So we have to subsidize it somehow or do a tax break or there's all sorts of different things that these companies have gotten. And so what we do is we, we create the world's cheapest electricity. That's what they say. Well, is that the world's cheapest electricity because there's the tax breaks and the subsidized 
or is that the world's cheapest electricity? Because it truly is. And so we we pick winners and losers. The government sits there and says, you said, you know, what happens when the government gets involved in anything? More government. Yep. And and what we're finding in these moments is we then sit there and go, hey, you know what? We're we're going to dump state funds into or federal funds into or or whatever whatever staunch it comes out of. We're going to dump this money into it because it's going to help the economy. And in the end, what happens is, like you said, we hamstring an industry to not actually be able to fully understand capitalism and and fulfill its, its duty. And so the moment uh, another thing that you need to realize and you asked, how does how does the state make it where the economy is better? And the state does have a role, I feel. And what that really is, is create a seedbed and get the heck out of it. Yeah, create the climate by which business can prosper. There you go. Hey, we're not going to do things as a government that's going to make it hard. Regulatory, we're going to we're going to be intelligent. No, we're not going to let you be shoddy. We're going to do a good job, but we're not going to let you run away with things. And at the same time, we're not going to micromanage you so you can't actually run a business. Uh, you know, build that bed and then get out of it. One of the biggest frustrations I have is when the government is doing something that private sector is supposed to be doing. Absolutely. Well, a great example of what you're talking about. There was an article in the CalPi last week talking about Project Bison. That's the carbon capture, big carbon capture project that's going on. And one of the guys behind the project was quoted as saying, well, the, the price per ton of carbon that we capture has gone from $50 a ton with the new Inflation Reduction Act to $180 a ton. Now, really, what that is, is an 80% increase in the subsidy for what they're doing. And so it's not, it's not generating, it's not a new industry, it's not you know, creating economic development, it's a government entity that's prospering off of government subsidies. Yeah. Yep. All right, I've got two more questions for you, Jeremy, okay. Jeremy before I let you go. Uh, the first is an obvious one. So you've got an opponent now. He's running as an independent. His name is Dan Brecht, and looks like he lives just kind of down the road from you. Yep. So why should I pull the lever for you? Well, I think what, what people need to understand and realize, uh, first off, is the fact, and, and I said this on the live I did a while back on my, my political page, my Facebook page, but you know, I have respect for Dan. Dan's a huge part of this community, and, and, I, and I love his heart for this community. But I think this really doesn't come down to community involvement or the love for the community. This comes down to worldview. This comes down to how people view the, the pressing matters of today. If there has ever been a time where our morals and values as Americans are being bombarded, it's now. We are losing freedom faster now than we've ever lost it in history. And if there was if now is such a vital time for, for people to rise up and, and, and drive the stake in the ground and say, you know what, we're not we're not moving from this point. And if we do, it's going to be forward, not backwards. And so over the last two years, as, as I've taken my role in the, in the House of Representatives, one of the, the goals when I went in there and what I said is this, my job is to represent 10,000 people. My job is to represent the conservative values of my community. And as a, the voting record proves it in, in the community that we are a conservative community. House District 4 is a conservative district. And 
and I have upheld that conservative mentality moving forward. My my voting record proves time and time again that my my goal is to preserve the rights of the people and at the same time uh, tighten the, the belt around the government because we don't need more government. We need our government to do the job it was intended to do and no more. And so the right sizing of government is incredibly important. The second thing is this, uh, at the end of the day, the decisions that are going to be made in this election between Dan Breck and myself are not decisions of who loves the community more or less. It really comes down to who's going to uphold uh, the conservative values that we hold dear as Wyomingites. And, and my record has proven that I do. Uh, I will continue to do that. I'll continue to put my, my ear to the heart of the people and, and truly represent my, my people as I go down to Cheyenne. Now, you and I have spoken at, well, I don't know, a number of events, but a couple different events. And yeah. you and I'm always impressed by the message that you bring to your constituents and is that while some of the things can be helped by government, some of them um, can certainly be, maybe even be solved by government, but we can't do any of that uh, without God. Yeah. And so I wanted to give you a uh, just a couple minutes, however many you want, um, just to kind of talk about that. Yeah. Well, thank you, David. So I, I, I work in a very interesting role uh, as a pastor and a legislator. Um, a lot of I actually had some people say, you know, that's that's unconstitutional. And I get I have this has a kind of a joke. I have this outstanding uh, offer. Anyone who can find the separation of church and state in our Constitution gets a million dollars from me. Uh, and the reason I say that is because you can't find it because it's not in there. And so I believe that if we look at our history, a majority of our of our founding fathers were were men of faith, and and they a lot of them were even very much involved in their in their uh, their churches, even to the point of pastoring. And why I believe that is so important is the the values that we hold dear are values that our freedoms are not given by government or given by man, they are given by God. And because of that, we need to go back to a place of understanding that this government rose because of God and it will fall uh, as well if God allows. And so I, I, I walk into this with an attitude that we as, we as Christians and myself as a Christian that I, I understand that I am partnering with God to help bring a, about his uh, will for this for this state. And so I, I, I really truly believe that for such a time as this, God is rising up a group of godly men and women who are going to, to help be the shift in the culture and change in the culture that we need, that our next generation truly understands and knows what freedom looks like. Because David, Freedom is freedom is on the chopping block. It's at the guillotine of sorts. Freedom is in the French Revolution, so to speak. And if we don't see the change happen right now, uh, I believe that we may be too far gone. And so as I've spoken to my church and I've spoken to the people of House District 4 and the people around the state, uh, I'm unashamed of who I am in Christ. I'm unashamed of the call that he's placed upon my life. And I believe that the values that I hold dear, the values that uh, that are brought forth in scripture and brought forth by the church 
uh, our values that um, are going to be the foundation uh, for the revitalization of not only this state, but this nation. Well, Jeremy, I appreciate you taking the time to visit with me. Definitely welcome anytime you like. Well, anytime you want insight on something, shoot me a shoot me an invite. I'd love to be able to join you. You got it. Well, that'll do it for today's installment of the program. Don't forget about the live episode beginning at 10 a.m. tomorrow. The link is on the website, and I'll also put it on the Facebook page. Have a good rest of your week, and we'll talk again tomorrow. From the base of the Bighorns in beautiful Buffalo, Wyoming, I'm David Iverson, and this is Cowboy State Politics.